Today we'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. In the year A.D. 37, there was a boy born in Italy named Lucius Ahenobarbus. His mother's name was Agrippina the Younger, and she married the Roman emperor Claudius, who ended up adopting this little boy named Lucius, and he changed his name to Nero Claudius Germanicus. The adoption and that name change were all part of his mother's plotting to see Nero become emperor of Rome. In the year A.D. 54, when Nero was only 17 years old, his mother changed, or, or sorry, arranged for Claudius to be poisoned to death. And the boy then was proclaimed emperor of Rome. Nero's reign would only last 14 years until he eventually committed suicide at the age of 31. Nero was not a nice man. You've probably heard some nasty things about him. He was very selfish, selfish, sorry, calculating, uh, was actually incapable of ruling well, in the, particularly in the first part of his reign. Sadly, he became quite paranoid, and uh, he, you know, if your if your stepfather is is murdered and you see all kinds of nasty things happening around you, it's no wonder he became paranoid. Anyway, he was paranoid about all these so-called rumors going around. There were people wanted to kill him, and so in the year fifty-five, he had his stepbrother killed. In the year fifty-nine, he had his mother executed. In the year 62, his first wife was executed. And then he had his former counselor by the name of Seneca, uh, well, he basically forced him to commit suicide. And so in the midst of this madness, the Apostle Peter is arriving probably around this time in Rome, somewhere around the year 63. Now, Nero was not the only ruler that Peter had known. He had known, of course, of Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, who the Bible says he washed his hands of Jesus' murder, and he turned Jesus over to be crucified on no grounds whatsoever, not not any legitimate ones anyway. He had also known of Herod Antipas, who executed John the Baptist, uh, again, not on any substantial grounds. Peter was probably a boy in the region of Galilee when he heard that Herod the Great uh, proceeded to kill all these babies in the Bethlehem area. Why do I say all that? I'm, I'm, I'm saying, giving you a little history of this time period, so you understand Peter knew about this very vicious world of government corruption and wickedness. So it's in light of that background that Peter is writing this text. See, you understand, Peter didn't grow up in a Christian nation. He knew the depravity of human nature and the utterly ruinous corruption that political power can bring. And so this was the world into which Peter is writing this text. It's nasty. It's destructive. It's deadly. And so this text is going to help us, even though our world is not exactly the same, at least not in New Zealand, it's not exactly the same, but nevertheless, it's going to help us to know how to relate 
to human authority. That's what this text is about. So in light of that, let's read our text. 1 Peter 2, starting at verse 13. These are the words of the living God. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Well, we're going to see in our text here, Peter's going to be very helpful. He's going to be very practical. He's going to tell us what, what does God expect of us living in a hostile world. Peter's going to give us some practical application here of how, to, how do we live this command out? What is the purpose of government? Very practical stuff here that we can walk away with today of how to relate to human authority. First of all, I want you to notice Peter starts with a command in verse 13. Basically, he tells us what God expects of us. What does God want you to do? Well, notice verse 13. Peter just says, be subject. Be subject. That's the command. Some of your Bibles might might say something about submit or submission. But the basic idea here is this is, Peter's using a military expression. Literally, it means to arrange in a formation under a commander. So if you've ever seen military the, the military hierarchy rankings. Of course, you got a, some sort of a commander at the top. Usually there's generals somewhere at the top. And then eventually you work your way all the way down through the rankings of a military. You've got people way at the bottom like privates, for example, right? That's the, the, the word imagery that Peter is using here. Now, of course, God is the ultimate commander in chief of of this rankings here, and he has then delegated his authority out through the ranks. Now, one could translate this as put yourselves in the attitude of submission. This is something God expects. It's an attitude, notice. It's an attitude. It's not just an action. See, you can do stuff outwardly, but be rebelling on the inside, can't you? Your attitude can be the exact opposite of submission. It's like the little kid in the classroom who was being naughty. And so the teacher, I don't know if this happens these days, but the teacher sent the little kid into the naughty corner. Put your nose in that corner. Go to the naughty corner. Put your nose in that corner. You were naughty. Shame on you. So the kid goes over. He was quite cheeky. And the kid told the teacher, outwardly I'm obeying, but inwardly I'm disobeying. The kid refused to submit. The attitude of the heart was still rebellion, even though outwardly there was submission. Well, we can do the same. God's saying, you put yourself in this attitude of submission. 
The command is basically obey, but it's it goes beyond that. See, there's this exhortation here is just not merely to obey, but we're to create, maintain an attitude of heart that leads us to obey. Right? God cares about your heart. He sees your heart. If He has your heart, then then all the externals will line up, rank themselves under the command here. So this is the command. This is what God expects us to do. Well, then the next question we see in verse 13 is then, to what are we to submit? We're to be subject. We are to submit to, to what? Well, verse 13 Notice says that God expects us to submit to every human institution. And by the way, these are human institutions that God has ordained. You go all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, start reading through, you'll see God's ordained the family, God's ordained government, God's ordained the church. Within these, within these institutions, there are leaders to whom we must submit. So, by the way, that includes even unreasonable, evil, harsh rulers, even oppressive systems, even like the one in Peter's day. These, by the way, are better than anarchy. All forms of government, of course, are filled with evil. Because why? Because they're filled with people who have evil hearts. They're full of fallen sinners. But still, civil authority is from God. By the way, this doesn't just apply to civil authority. We'll see that in a moment. But the word every here shows us that this is appropriate for us to apply this particular statement here to all human authorities. Not just government. Now we're going to see some application for government. But this would include parents. God says you are to submit, to subject yourself If you're a child to your parents, if you're a member of a church, God says you're to submit to the church leaders. If you are an employee, God's saying to you, submit to your boss. These are the human institutions that God has set up. And if we rebel against these human leaders, then ultimately we rebel against God. Now it's interesting, notice in your Bible the word institution That does not refer to each individual law. Now, I'm distinguishing this. Stick with me here. There's a reason for this. See, institutions make laws, enforce laws. So the word institution doesn't refer to those individual laws, but to the institutions that make up those laws. They're the ones enforcing the laws. See, it's possible to submit to institutions and still disobey the laws of that institution. I'll give you a biblical example. When Daniel and his three friends, in Daniel chapter 1, they refused to obey the king's dietary regulations. They refused to eat the king's meat and drink the king's wine. They were disobeying the laws of that land. It came directly from the king. But the way they did that, though, proved that they were honoring the position of leadership. They respected the authority that was over them. They did it as respectfully as they possibly could. They were not rebels, but they were careful not to embarrass the particular 
official that, that told them the king's law. They, they had no desire to get this, this official in trouble with the king. But yet they stood their ground, didn't they? They were trying to glorify God and at the same time honor the authority of the king. Do you see that? So it is possible to disobey the laws of an institution while at the same time honoring and and submitting yourself to that institution. So as much as possible, we need to seek to cooperate with these institutions, particularly the, the one we probably struggle with, the one that Peter mentions here is government. We need to seek to obey the laws of our land as much as possible. Let me give you an example of how this might work out in a church setting. How do we obey the laws of the land in regard to government, in regards to a church? Well, when I lived in Hastings, I was overseeing a a church building project. See, local churches sometimes construct buildings, and there are local codes that must be obeyed. Uh, in relationship to our, our church there in Hastings, we, we weren't building a whole new building. We were adding on and changing. And as a result, we found out, well, you know what? This building, according to the current codes, is not up to scratch. For example, we didn't have handicapped toilets, right? So we had, we had to change our whole toilet system. So if somebody comes in in a wheelchair, they have a place to use. It needed to be handicapped accessible. Doorways, some situations had to be widened, right? Things like that had to be done. And some people get all uh, upset about that as, as Christians think, the government has no right to tell me to do that. This is our church. You know, they get really possessive. Oh, actually, the government has every right to control matters that relate to your safety and the operation of it. So if the law then requires, for example, that you have exits, fire exits, or fire extinguishers, or toilets for handicapped people, or emergency lights, or whatever, guess what? God says the church must comply. So don't think, some Christians get this mindset that the state is persecuting the church when they do this. They're not. The church is not compromising when it obeys those codes. However, there are some overly zealous saints who disgrace the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by their attitudes as well as their actions when when they're relating to government codes and the laws of the land. That's sad. shouldn't be that way. So you say, well, okay, why do I do this? Why should I do this? Well, Peter's he's going to head you off at the pass here. In verse 13, he tells us why we should obey. Why should we submit and subject to every human institution. Notice verse 13 says, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. See, Christians obey because they desire to honor the Lord. Believers obey earthly authority to honor God's authority. And so, children, when you obey your parents, it's not because your parents are worthy of your obedience. You obey for God's sake. Church members, when you submit to church leaders, you don't do it for the leader's sake because church leaders are not worthy 
but you do it for God's sake. And when employees submit to employers, it's not because they're awesome, (laughs) or they pay you a lot, or whatever it might be, but you do it for the Lord's sake. Say, we're representatives of Jesus Christ. Christians do not submit to human institutions just because you feel like it. That's the wrong reason. You don't do it just because you have uh, some easygoing personality or because the institutions can somehow coerce you with their power. Right? You, you, don't, you don't not speed just because you don't want to pay a $100 fine, for example. See, we're not supposed to speed because we do it for the Lord's sake. We submit to this government institution for the Lord's sake. So we don't look first at ourselves, in other words, to see how we feel about this, whether we want to do it or not. Nor do we look first at the institution to see if there's consequences. That's the wrong reason. See, we look first to God. We seek to honor God in our submission. We consult God about the institution, and then we submit for His sake. Now, what makes this issue so urgent for Peter that he's bringing it up right here is the previous four verses. Why is Peter bringing this up now? Well, in verse 9, notice he says that Christians are a chosen race, a holy nation, and a people of God's own possession. In verse 10, he said that we are the people of God. In verse 11, he said that we are therefore aliens and strangers among the social and political institutions of this world. That's who you are if you're a believer in Christ. And by the way, all that then raises the question then whether or not we have any allegiance to the institutions of this world. Do you? Well, if we are a separate holy nation, And if we're God's people, and if we are aliens and strangers, well then perhaps some people say we should just withdraw into our holy ghettos, into our little, you know, Christian gangs in our communities and our enclaves, and just have nothing to do with the, the, the human institutions of this world. What does Peter say? What does the Holy Spirit say? The Holy Spirit says, no, you're not to get in your holy little gang and so, you know, and isolate yourself. While you are in this world, you are citizens of two different orders and two different systems. And you have to live in both of them at the same time. See, this world with its necessary institutions and the order of the kingdom of God has necessary values. Now, this is not because those two orders have equal authority. I'm not suggesting that the government and God are equal here, or that parents and God are equal, or your boss and God are equal. That's not the point. And so this is, this is not because these two orders have equal authority, but because God is the ruler and the owner of both. And so when you belong first to Him and His kingdom, you can then be sent by Him for His sake, for His purposes. You're sent out for His glory, for the glory of Him and His kingdom in this world. So you have an opportunity 
as you live in the tension of these two worlds, gods and, and these human institutions, to glorify Him. So why should you obey? Peter says, do it for the Lord's sake. Well, that brings up another question we see here. Why does God give us human authority? Why does God do this anyway? Well, verse 14 gives us two reasons for human authority in our lives. Verse 14 says, to governors as sent by Him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So there's your two purposes of, of human government for our civil government. Those are the main purposes that Peter says. Wow, if you compare that, by the way, to what our city councils and our regional councils and our national government does, you, you're going to see some discrepancies here, aren't you? It, is it really the purpose of our government to be planting flowers in roundabouts and be building, you know, event centers and stadiums and th- this sort of stuff? Is that the purpose of government according to God? Well, not according to Peter. It doesn't it has a whole lot to do with punishing evil and praising good. Well, Apostle Paul said something very similar in Romans 13. Look at this. He says the exact same thing, because he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer, or wrongdoer. I was thinking about, what, how, how could we illustrate this? help you understand this a little. And I was thinking about conversations I've had with some of you over the years of why is it on November 5th we have this this day when New Zealanders like to set fire to things and blow up stuff and you know do fireworks that sort of thing. And I've been asking some of you and some even some New Zealanders don't understand why we do this. So I found out why. And this illustrates these two purposes of civil government. See, November 5th actually commemorates a failure. (laughs) See, the year is 1605, and there was this gunpowder plot by a gang of Roman Catholics. And, of course, one of those guys in that group was, his name was Guy Fawkes. Therefore, we get Guy Fawkes night. You need to understand the time period here in England. See, when the Protestant King James I ascended to the throne, English Catholics had hoped that the persecution which they had been feeling for 45 years under Queen Elizabeth I would finally end. And then they would be granted freedom to practice their religion. And so when that didn't actually come about, 
there was this group of conspirators who resolved that they were going to assassinate the king and they were going to blow up parliament and all the MPs and lords and whoever else was in there. And they, they decided they were going to do it on the, the, the opening of parliament. And so before that happened, though, Guy Fawkes was kind of in down in the dungeon cellar area underneath parliament building there. And he was actually caught in the act. <laughs> and he was captured there and eventually punished for his evil doing. You say, well, how did they find out? (laughs) How did they find out? Well, somehow Lord Monteagle found out. And he actually reported this, I think, to the palace guard, if I remember correctly. And then, of course, the palace guard ended up capturing Guy Fawkes, and then they ended up getting all the other conspirators in the process. But the government ended up praising the good of Lord Monteagle and rewarded him with money and gave him some land for his service to the crown. You may not agree with all that. That's not the point. Okay, But notice, the government of that day was punishing the evildoers and praising the good doers. That is the purpose of government. Now, I know they don't always do that, okay? But but it's helpful for us as Christians to understand this is the purpose of government. So then what is the purpose for submission? Well, that's verse 15. Because verse 15 says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, doing good, according to Scripture, silences foolish people. Who are these foolish people anyway, you say? Well, the word foolish just means that they're senseless. They are without reason and and may express a lack of mental sanity. In other words, your conduct here has the ability to stop the mouths of God's critics. Because the word silence there means to restrain, muzzle, or make speechless. You know what a muzzle is, right? You might put that on a, on a potentially dangerous dog. You put this thing over his mouth. So hopefully the dog won't bite somebody. And that's the idea here. It, it, it denotes the gagging of someone's mouth so as to render that person incapable of a response. Integrity here is an effective tool to muzzle the enemies of God. To these enemies of Christianity. Notice, when you do this, this is God's will. It's God's will. You don't have to guess what His will is in this situation. So what's the purpose for submission? Doing good silences foolish people. It puts a muzzle on God's critics. What's the proper attitude of submission? That's verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So here's the proper attitude, my friends. Peter is actually cautioning those who are free in Christ, and that's all believers, to don't use that spiritual freedom as a cover-up for then having some sort of an excuse to go on and not submit and then rebel against authority. See, the word cover-up there is like placing a mask over something. 
You're, you're wanting to somehow not reveal the reality behind the mask. You want, you're, you're covering it up. But what does God say? A godly Christian is going to live as a servant of God. Live as a servant of God. Yes, you are free in Christ. But freedom in Christ doesn't mean you can just do whatever you want. See, freedom in Christ means you can now do God's will, which is be subject to every institution. And then Peter goes on to give us some application here. Well, how do we be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only? So here's the application of verse 17. Four points that Peter makes. Notice, first of all, he says, honor everyone. Honor everyone. The word honor, by the way, just means to respect. You say, why, why do I need to respect everybody? By the way, that's a command. It's imperative, not an option. So why do I have to respect and honor everybody? Well, every person, according to Genesis, is created in God's image. And because every person is made in God's image, that makes them worthy of respect. It's not what they do. It's not how much money they have. It's not their social standing that makes someone worthy of respect. It's because they're made in God's image. So Christians are not their... Uh, you're not to discriminate against any class of people then uh, because of their race or ethnicity. We're all equal. right? The Bible over and over again says this idea, whether you're Jew or Greek, or whether you're slave or free, whatever it is, you're all, as believers, one in Christ. So don't discriminate discriminate against any class of people. Based on their ethnicity, whether, don't base, don't base that on nationality. Don't discriminate on someone's economic status. Those aren't valid reasons. So we're therefore to show proper respect for everybody, Peter said. We need to see others as having inherent value in God. By the way, that includes poor people. (laughs) So the poor are often humiliated and stripped of dignity by the way we treat them, by the way our own government treats them. Right? Just the fact that that we we allow them to receive the dole and get welfare is, is a form of discrimination. Public services provided to poor people are devaluing them. Often what our governments do are actually unbiblical in this regard. By the way, we, we also dishonor people by discriminating against them by giving preferential treatment uh, to, to people who appear to have higher value. We demean people who seem to have little value, who, who have nothing to offer us or little to contribute. You know, somebody who's handicapped or whatever, right? We... We, we might discriminate against them because, you know, what can that person do for me? We often think that way. So discrimination dishonors people. God's saying don't do that. Honoring men requires that we not judge them on the basis of their appearance. How often do we do that, though? We look at somebody who isn't exactly like us, and we have a hard time relating to them. It means that we dare not treat some people with 
with dignity and others without dignity. They're all made in God's image. And so in the culture of Bible times, this could have easily been missed because in the Roman Empire, it included 60 million slaves. And Roman law, by the way, considered slaves not as actual people, but they're just a commodity. They, they were property, if you will. They're like chattel. They had no rights. And so, in fact, Peter calls us to remember the, the rights of human dignity, the rights of human personality, and the dignity of every person. And so, don't treat people as an object. Because they're not. God says, treat others better than yourselves, Philippians says. So what's the application? Honor everyone. Respect everyone because they're made in God's image. Number two, Peter says, love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood. The word love there is coming from that root uh, Greek word agape, God's unconditional love that He has for us. So we're to love who here? Who, who is the brotherhood? This is fellow believers. So this agape love means we're to demonstrate or show this love not just by word, but by action. Your actions speak loud, don't they? And so we're to love in word and action. Apostle John says it this way in John 13, 34. It's on the screen here for you. These are Jesus' words. And Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this love, he's talking about, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Your love is speaking volumes even to an unsaved world. By that love, Jesus said, all people will know that you are his disciples. So love the brotherhood. Number three, fear God, he says in verse 17. And that's a profound reference showing respect and worship. It's an interesting word, fear. Uh, we get an English word from this called phobia. Right? We have all kinds of phobias these days. Right? Arachnophobia, the fear of spiders, or you know, list goes on and on. All kinds of phobias, fears of things. And and, and God's saying we need to have a fear of Him. A, phob- a God phobia, if you will. A, a reverent fear that then leads us to obedience. And so this would include then trusting God in all the circumstances of our life, even under unbearable circumstances of a Roman emperor. What Peter is exhorting his readers to do here. Even if Emperor Nero should come after you, submit. Difficult situation, isn't it? But it shows what are you really trusting in? See, if we if we fear God... If he's the, the one who we, we have this reverential awe for, then well, all the people who come underneath God in, in, in his various delegating of authority, well, I can handle that because God's the ultimate commander. And so that it's interesting that Peter should end with number four to honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. In other words, we're to show respect for these government leaders. Why? Because the emperor is God's agent. That, that emperor, that king, that prime minister, president, whatever you want to call him, 
He is there carrying out the purposes of government, hopefully. So in our modern world, the, you can carry that title of emperor over to whatever situation fits your government. And so these, these people are worthy of respect, not because of who they are, but, be, but because God has given them this position. Well, that leads to a rather hairy topic that some Christians struggle with. What about civil disobedience? Can Christians participate, be involved in civil disobedience? Well, Peter doesn't specifically address that here, but let me, let me just address it because I know some Christians struggle with this. Can Christians actually participate in civil disobedience? Well, it's justified according to Scripture only when, number one, government compels us to sin. Only when government compels us to sin. I'll give you a biblical illustration here. In Daniel chapter 3, the king was commanding everybody to bow down in idolatry to this this false god, this image of himself. You can see a picture of that here. So the king was desiring worship, which we would call idolatry, because the king is obviously not the one true god. And so what did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? Did they bow down and worship? No. They, They could have excused it. Couldn't they just say, well... You know, outwardly I'm bowing down, but on the inside I'm not bowing. They they could have excused it that way. But what did they do? They stood in defiance to the king's command. They, They still honored the king, but they refused to obey his law. So when government compels us to sin, obviously we can't do that. Another thing that justifies so-called civil disobedience is when there's no legal recourse for fighting injustice. Another example that came to my mind is Exodus chapter 1. See, the, the king or the pharaoh of the land had decreed that all male babies of Hebrews were to be murdered. In fact, he told all the Hebrew midwives, murder the male babies, all of them indiscriminately. Well, there's no legal recourse for fighting against this injustice, right? The the Hebrew midwives couldn't go to a Supreme Court. They, They had no other place to go. It was the king's command. So they refused to obey. And of course, the one we know the most about probably is Moses, right? What did Moses' mother do? What did his family do? They they put Moses in a basket. And God providentially saved his life, raised him up to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt. Now why? Well, the reason is here that why is it justified? Well, all the scriptural examples of civil disobedience fall squarely into those two situations. I'm not aware of any others. So any other kind of activism then has no precedent in the Bible. And, and it, by the way, is actually violating the very spirit of First Peter and Romans 13. So what do we learn from Peter in particular? Number one, think about this. 
Peter gives us no exceptions concerning submission to authority. None whatsoever. <laughs> All right? It's very easy for us to, to, to want to go in the direction of civil disobedience. But Peter's not letting you go there. So what, what I'm trying to say is grasp, grasp the authorial intent of Peter here. Just kind of keep that in mind as you think about the big picture here. He's not giving any exceptions. That's where our minds might tend to go. We want to come up with excuses. But he's just saying submit to authority. Number two, no qualifications are made to the kind of government to which we are to submit. Right? I've already introduced you to the kind of government that Peter had to deal with in his day. It was terrible. I would dare say worse than what we have today, wouldn't you say so? At least in New Zealand. So Peter's not letting you get away with qualifying this like we want to do. And you say, well, I don't want to obey that MP because they, they just came up with a rubbish law. Well, that might be. <laughs> but Peter's not giving you any qualifications here as to the kind of government to submit to. He also says, Peter, number three, does not make the performance of that government official the basis for whether or not you actually submit. Right? It doesn't matter if they do their job well or not. Peter's not making any exceptions to performance here. It's based on their position. You understand that? So we subject ourselves to every human institution not based on their performance, but we do it again. Notice, it's for the Lord's sake. It's because of their office that God has given to them, not their performance. And so here, my friend, is the proposition for you today. That God wants us to submit to all human authority. To all legitimate human authority. The ones that God has ordained. You could probably think of some outside the ones that God has legitimately ordained. Right? But this, these are legitimate ones. God wants us to subject ourselves, to rank ourselves under Him. He is the commander-in-chief. He is the ultimate commander. And so we submit for the Lord's sake to all human authority. May God enable us to do this even in a hostile world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Peter's instruction. As hard as it is to hear, as hard as this is to obey and live it out, we ask that by Your grace, we would be a people who bring You honor and glory through the very attitudes of our hearts as, as we strive to submit to every human institution that You have ordained. May we do this for the Lord's sake, not our own, or not because we don't want to go to jail, or or not because we, we wish to somehow avoid a fine, or, or whatever our reasoning might be. And may we also understand the purpose of government and help our local governments and the state national governments to understand their purpose. Why are they here? So, Father, may we obey these commands because we 
love you. May that be the ultimate purpose here. So may the world around us see our light and our good works and bring you honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.